Hi, everybody. Welcome to Evil Chat number 23. This is Derek. Um, before I get right into introducing uh, my two guests today, it's the first time I've had uh, two guests on the podcast at the, at, uh, the same time, um, I just want to do a couple of shout outs. Uh, these are going to sound like advertisements, but they're not really because uh, I'm not getting anything from them. I'm just trying to help out some friends of mine that are doing good work. The first is... Um, the father uh, of, a, of a kid that I'm coaching, his name is Orville Sweeney. He was a competitive long jumper, high-level long jumper for Jamaica in his day and a uh, longtime uh, track and field coach in the jumps. He's in, this, uh, he's in the Chicago area here. Um, and he has invented a new track spike. And by that, I mean needle spike that goes into track spikes. You know how they can be a pain in the ass to get out, right? You know, with the wrench after a while, you know, they skip on you and stuff like that. He's invented a spike and a wrench to go with it, which also will work on traditional spikes. But these these pin spikes, um, they have the they have a hole through uh, a horizontal hole through them. So with this, this wrench has an adapter that can pop out of it that you put through this hole and you it gives you just tons of leverage to crank it and and turn it. So it's quite interesting. It's called needle eyes needle eye spikes.com. Just you can just search our Put that in your browser it'll come up he sells other stuff on the site as well but these are this is a really cool design at, at first when he just tell me about it, i was kind of like what and then then he, when he showed it to me i was like wow this is this actually works really well so it's really cool so i just want to give him a shout out uh he's also got a video on youtube just uh cert, uh just google needleized spikes demo and it'll pop up the second shout out i want to give is to my buddies at Altus. Uh, the foundation course is taking registrations again. Uh, that's something uh, I did a had a hand in putting together. Uh, if you've listened to some of the podcasts or seen any of the work on my site, you know that I did a lot of work with PJ Basil, a guy who I got to get on the site now. Now that I'm not doing so much of the, you know, having to send these kits around and I'm doing them over Zoom, uh, I, I got PJ, I'm I'm going to contact you. We got to do something. And uh, yeah, PJ and I did some uh, work we're real proud of on there. So go to uh, Altus World. I think, what is it? Altusworld.com. Anyways, uh, it's like Disney World for um, for athletes, um, I guess. And uh, they're, uh, they've relocated. But oh, Stu is coming back on the podcast. I'm going to, him and I are going to chat next week. So that's coming up. He'll tell us all about all the new stuff that's going on at Altus. A lot of changes there. Uh, it's all very, very exciting, I'm sure. Uh, now, um, my podcast today. So this, if you're into youth development and all of that, training, blah, 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 you are really going to dig this. This is a deep dive into the science of it. It's the first of what's going to be a series of podcasts with my two guests. Um, and, you know, we really get deep into it. And in particular, in this one, this, this first podcast, we talk a lot about peak height velocity because it's one part of the whole LTAD, quote unquote, thing that, uh, you know, that I'm not never been super familiar with because I've never really implemented it. And James, one of my guests, my first guest that I'm going to introduce in a minute, sets me straight big time on this. It's really, really good. Now, before I introduce them, though, 
If you haven't heard of Aspire Academy in Qatar, you probably want to Google it. A-S-P-I-R-E. Uh, I've done a little bit of work there uh, over the years. It's just this incredible sort of living laboratory of youth development. Uh, there is really, really nothing like it in the world. It's a sort of the the dream or pet project of the Emir of Qatar to develop Qataris into high-level athletes. They've done an incredible job there. A former athlete of mine uh, who I coach from like 13 or 14 years of age up to a, 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 up to a senior, um, worked there for five years, Scott Saunders, uh, really proud of the work he did there. And so I got to know this place pretty good. And um, like I said, I've been out there a few times. And... Um, yeah, you really just, just, I won't talk too much about it. You got to check it out online. It is really something else, what they, what they do here. Very, uh, you know, I, I say it all the time. A lot of institutions and organizations make the big mistake that when they, when they have a pot of money and they want to invest in sport, they first thing they do is they build tons of facilities and all of that. Uh, and the last thing they think about is who they're going to put in it. And, you know, not that Aspire hasn't gone down that hole or, you know, sort of, you know, wavered off course into that a little bit here and there. I'm sure they have, like most institutions, but they overall have done an incredible job with the people that they hire there. Um, a lot of the big names you'll see if you're into uh, sports science or performance science uh, will, you know, a lot of them will have had some association with Aspire Academy at some point, particularly if they specialize in youth development. And my two guests today work there. The first is James Baker. And I've been trying to get James on the podcast for a while. Uh, we were going back and forth uh, over the last couple of months, uh, trying to find a time. And, you know, and, you know, this is this is one podcast I actually really prepared a lot for. We had extensive notes and James was incredible. And my second guest, who I'll introduce in a second, we're both incredible at inputting to those notes. And really, I think it's uh, it shows in the podcast as <laughs> um, a opposed to many of my other podcasts um uh and james is you know he, he's one of you know he, he's one of these guys that i that i i have a lot of respect for because he started out as an snc guy and worked his way up through a number of different positions uh a lot everything he knows i'm sure is self-study uh self-research he got to a point where he was he was the SNC coach or slash phys ed teacher at a public high school in Britain. And rather than just sort of do his job, he actually created, you know, or do, you know, do perform those responsibilities at this school. He actually put together a formal long term athlete development model for that school. OK, so that's, you know, that's that's hard, you know taking what you know and applying it practically is hard enough taking what you know and applying it practically within an institutional setting is a whole other ball game and for people that do that uh, he works with mike young as well he's another guy that i have a lot of respect for because he does that very very well at his uh at his outfit um in uh, north carolina um 
and together they have formed the LTAD network and Google that there is, I mean, that is like probably the world's best resource on long-term athlete development, I would say. Uh, or at least if you want uh, a resource that is tried and true in terms of practice. But anyways, back to James. So he, he goes from this high school, he ends up in Qatar and, you know, which is exactly where a guy like that should be for his own sake. I mean, it's too bad though. You know, I, I guess we have the LTAD network to sort of get that out to the world, but you know, he's just living his best life in Qatar uh, with all the resources he needs and the right people he needs to do his job and that's that's who my second guess is but before i get to him he's the uh so it formally his formal title is the head of national talent identification at aspire academy he's the senior senior strength and conditioning coach and the performance support lead okay for a number of different sports and he'll fill us in a bit more of that when he uh introduces himself now the guy who helped me put this together with James uh, is a good friend of mine, long friend, longtime friend of mine and colleague that I first met when I worked in Britain. And when I worked in Britain, um, you know, I think uh, my former boss there, Kevin Tyler and good friend did a, uh, an incredible job with uh, as the head of coach development there. Um, I part of my responsibility there a small part was to input and help out there but really there was one guy who did it all who was the sort of you know he's the he was the boots on the ground that really put it all together and that's a guy named Tom Crick and if you anybody who has tapped into any of the old I don't think it's online anymore the old U coach resources that was just absolutely stunning uh, that was all Tom it was all Tom's, uh, you know, it was him and Kevin. It was their vision and Tom's work that put all of that together. It was just absolutely incredible. From there, Tom went on to uh, be the uh, director or the director of athletics for Northern Ireland. And then from there, he got recruited as the head coach for athletics, as we say here in North America, track and field. Uh, for Aspire Academy. So so he works very closely with James. And to get through to James, I went through Tom and I asked Tom to sit in on this podcast, which is mainly James and I going back and forth. But I asked Tom to sit in and do some color commentary on it and sort of let it, you know, give us an idea how all this works at Qatar, uh, which he did a perfect job of. Um, I talked too much. He didn't talk enough. But this is the first of a series. We're going to do one on strength and on speed coming up. It's just, it's going to be great. So I'll stop talking now. And for better or for worse, here is Evil Chat number 23 with James Baker and Tom Crick from Aspire Academy in Qatar. All right, gentlemen, how are you? Doing great. Very good. Thanks, Derek. Ah, now we're working. We had a, some technical issues there initially. So, um, Tom, how are you? Tom Crick, I, I would have done, I, I've done a formal introduction already, so we can probably just get into it. Uh, but I just, you know, James, you and I have not ever met in person or even online, I don't think. So it's nice to meet you and thank you very much for doing this. And Tom, thanks for putting this together. Hey, no problem. Okay, great, great. James, um, I'm 
I don't want to go too much into backgrounds here because I'm trying to get away from that because it, it, we have so much to talk about that I don't want to waste too much time. But uh, just just briefly fill us in on how you got to Aspire because the two of you are in Aspire. I will have explained what that is to the listeners who don't know. Tom, you're the head coach of athletics, track and field. And James, you have a number of positions. You want to just fill us in on that? Sure. And, and yeah, how so you got there? I arrived at Aspire from, uh, I was working at a secondary school in the UK and I'd set up a long-term athlete development pathway that was embedded with the physical educa- education curriculum. Uh, I had some contact with Alex Natira that was over at Aspire and we were talking over some time. We did some work together and he essentially got Good me guy. over to Aspire. Yeah, great guy, great guy. Um, so I moved over uh, in 2017 and I moved as an SNC coach for primarily for athletics within the development program, which obviously is part of the department Tom oversees with athletics. Um, and I was working with the, well, the, the mini cadets and the cadets, which is sort of up to, up to under 16 um, and delivering the SNC, building the physical development pathway and um, but also had a strong interest in growth and maturation and understanding the impact of that on performance, particularly in a speed power sport like um, athletics. So through the course of the first couple of years, I ended up taking over the sports science lead role for those three um, age groups. Um, And then at the beginning of this year, that sort of evolved into me then taking on the head of talent identification as well for the, for the, uh, Olympic sports so do a lot of work with athletics uh, that's the bulk of my my day-to-day work uh, but also have input on the development programs at, uh, and the recruitment programs for fencing uh, motorsport um, table tennis this is sport. all within aspire yeah all within aspire wow. Wow, man, Aspire's grown even since I was there. I've, I've been there a few times, uh, I think three or four times. Um, and um, yeah, uh, so well, that uh, so you you basically then spend your life studying, researching, and putting into practice everything we're going to talk about today. Is that yeah, fair to much. say? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Try and stay up to date on the research, try and answer the questions, and then boots on the ground, make it come to life. Right. And you have, do, do you have any like formal, I, I don't know, I mean, is there formal study in, I mean, can you can you get a degree in long-term athlete development? I don't think you can, but you, you so you're, you're essentially, when you were at the, when you were at the school in Britain, were you a teacher or were you there hired on as a, as a, uh, an SNC specialist? So I was working in SNC prior to going to the school, uh, in the private sector, trying to run long-term athlete development, uh, programs with a guy called Ed Archer, who's over in the UK. He was way ahead of his time. Um, but from there, I moved into the school to, and I took it up as a PE teacher training uh, placement. It was a means to getting into the school full time, but they wouldn't hire a SNC coach on a full time basis. It was a state secondary school, just your normal comprehensive high school that so it was uh, a public school, public school. Yeah, didn't have a budget for that. So I went in as a as a PE teacher, trained as a PE teacher for a year and then. Gradually, that grew 
the program grew from like five hours a, a, a fortnight to 40 hours a fortnight over the four years that I was there. So it, it turned into a dedicated role to athletic development, essentially. Okay, well, that that's actually pretty relevant here because a lot of the people that are going to listen to this will be U.S. high school coaches who are basically in the same boat. And a lot of the issues that we're going to talk about today revolve around people that are in that in that position, um, you know, uh, we've, uh, we, the, I, we probably, I probably did more preparation for this, this podcast than I have for any other. And thank you, James, very much. And Tom, you, uh, for your input in the notes, cause we have extensive notes here on, uh, from which we're going to draw on. So, so thanks for that. So, okay. So, so, uh, so things are good at, at Aspire, Tom, they're good. You're rocking. Yeah. You're always they're doing, rocking. They're doing great. Yeah. Um, we've got a super team here now. I've been at Aspire four years. We've been putting that team together. And um, I really think we probably have the premier high school program in the world. And I'm not just saying that. It's just the fact that Aspire have managed to fund this to such a fantastic extent. I mean, just to give you an idea, we have 14 full-time athletics coaches, 100 athletes. And then we have a whole sports science team behind that and a talent identification team and a team that work with athletes a little bit younger than us and do multi-sport as well. So, you know, just to give you an example, our gymnastics coach used to be an international gymnast. You know, we've right. got Ivica here who, uh, who coaches the world record holder and three-time Olympic champion in the ham women's hammer. And we have like, Ivica, a whole other he was, he was uh, from uh, Croatia. Is he from? Yeah. Croatia. Of course. No, yeah. Dude, I do. Listen. So the last time I was in Qatar, I was there for three weeks. Uh, I, I don't know if you, I think, well, anyways, I won't get too into that because it was, uh, uh, I, I think that my, it was before my time, no, but my, yeah, it was, but, but my work there caused a bit of upheaval. Let's put it that way. And, uh, and, and I was there to do assessments on all the coaches at in track and field athletics. We have to say track and field, when we're talking, you know, so because here it's known as track and field everywhere else in the world, it's athletics. But anyways, and Avicha was, I think he was number one on my list when I ranked him. I, I love that guy. Him, him and I got along really, really well. Very good coach. Very, very good coach. Okay. So good. Well, I'm glad things are going well. Well, let's get right into it. So um, let's start with. LTAD and let's define. Oh, I should also say, James, you also run a website, the LTAD network, or your co. I don't know. I wouldn't say run it. You, your co-founder of that website. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. It's me and uh, Mike Young, who you've had on the uh, podcast previously. With yeah, I've had Mike on a couple of times, and um, I've had Mike on a couple of times, and he's and I brought him to my conference. Um, Without a doubt, the most uh, knowledgeable, straight ahead, best one, one of the best presenters I, I ever I've ever brought to to any of the conferences or anything I've ever done. The guy is just so on top of things. So I, I, I have to I have to get on your site and do a deep dive into it. You guys do a very good job, I'll say, of hiding your presence on there. I <laughs> I went on there and uh, it, it's I would 
like your names don't jump out on the on the page and i get maybe they do when you sign up but i was like looking about and everything contact us i was like yeah. but maybe we need to do a bit of work on that yeah yeah so good for you well you guys are you know the work you guys have done is pretty amazing on that i am you know i do get your newsletters and that so oh, so okay. i am sort of up to date on what's going on there a little bit okay so let's talk about ltad because for me now I'll just give you a really brief background with me. So um, Tom knows all this, but I, I was the head coach of a private club with zero money back starting in the mid nineties in Camelot's British Columbia, blah, blah, blah. So it was good in a lot of ways in that I sort of was isolated, had, I was, had full control over what I was doing bad in that I had almost zero support, but at the same time, as I was growing as a young coach, and I was putting together all of these plans and long-term plans and things like that, because it's just the way I think and uh, methodology and that is kind of a hobby of mine. I got recruited to, to write the quote LTAD unquote um, uh, um, program or framework for athletics Canada. Okay. So, and to do that, they actually had some money. They got some money from sport Canada. And so I, I was part of a team of athletics coaches that would, man, dude, this is going back like 20, over 20 years, 20 years ago, maybe. And we worked with Ishvan Bali in Victoria. So we would go down and we would meet with Ishvan and I got to know him really well, actually. He's a great, great guy. So, um, you know, and he did a ton of work, uh, in the UK at that time, I remember he was flying to, he was flying to the UK once a month and, um, and, uh, wrote a bunch of, you know, did a, I think he was, I think he put together their initial long-term athlete development model for UK sport. So that's kind of where I'm coming from. And the reason I bring all that up is because, you know, to me, LTAD means something very, very specific. Okay. And I don't mean specific as imprecise. I mean specific in that there's some concepts around it that uh, I think are unique to LTAD, quote unquote, as opposed to someone like myself who is really has, you know, long term progressions laid out for whatever whatever the environment is that they're or organization that they're working in. So why don't we start there? Why don't you, why don't you give us a rundown on what LTAD is? It means go ahead. Sure. So the definition I, I like uh, from the NSCA's position statement is that LTAD is the development, the habitual development of athleticism over time to improve health and fitness, enhance performance, reduce the relative risk of injury and develop the confidence and competence of all youth. But I think consider it, I prefer to conceptualize it in a, in a way that is more cradle to grave than just to youth. I think long-term athlete development has relevance from childhood right through adolescence, adulthood into old age. And I think we should consider it you know, physical development or athletic development or in that full life cycle, not just as a, mm -hmm. as a youth and, right. and just the development of children for the purposes of sport. I think it's, it's bigger and, and broader than that. And I think we can see lots of benefits in those other populations that aren't just for 
the sake of high performance. Right. But for this discussion, I think we're going to focus on youth because in the environment I'm in right now, that's where it's most crucial. And that's where really all the, well, I wouldn't say all the changes, because I guess as you get into old age, the, the there's another set of changes that start to happen. But when it comes to youth, that's where the that's where the critical areas are in terms of what to do, what not to do. Um, and I, I think I, I I think I sent you in part of the notes. I sort of I, more of a fun question, like how how would you how would you rank um, sort of the three different uh, paths that I see most athletes here typically take, which is a random chaotic path, which is just a you know, which can actually be pretty good, which is, you know, multi-sport athlete. There's no one sort of driving any long-term plan, but they, their seasonal sport approach may or may not be in some sort of formal strength program. Um, and then there's the more formal early specialized approach, which is, you know, well-meaning coaches with programs that, but, you know, probably the way I look at it, they kind of jump in sort of halfway along and, and introduce, you know, a lot of intensive type of training to young athletes. We'll get into that in a bit because, you know, that's where I think a lot of the issues are. And then the third is, you know, what, what you guys propose, what we all propose, which is a formal, um, um, you know, progressive staged approach in terms of preparing an athlete for, um, like you, like you say, performance down the road, life, you know, beyond 18, 19. And, you know, so, you know, like, what are your thoughts on that? James, just for, before you start, I think for me, the key thing is the, the long-term issue. And actually like, I'm, uh, I'm someone that for me kind of took on relevance recently, uh, well, not recently, maybe 10, 15 years ago, because I played a huge amount of sport as a kid. Uh, like literally a huge amount. You probably could never stop me playing sport. I was playing sport from seven in the morning till eight o'clock at night every day. And, uh, you know, I was pretty good. But then around the age of like 28, I started to do Brazilian jiu-jitsu before I did football, soccer, track and field, tennis, you know, cricket, all the... And you were a diver, sports. right? Weren't you yeah, a, was like a diver. A, like, like you were a seriously competitive diver. Yeah, I was a diver when I was younger, when I was very young, right? But I was also competitive with soccer, that was the key thing I was uh, playing when I was younger. And um, anyway, I did all this training uh, and it wasn't for, it wasn't uh, formal training. It was mainly informal myself doing stuff, but I then get to 28 years old and I want to change sport and get into Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And what I found is that through the course of me playing all this sport, when I was younger, I developed something called a cam impingement, actually cam impingements in both my hips, which has restricted my range of motion in, in, uh, knee, in uh, hip flexion. And this basically means I have zero internal rotation on both legs, which is absolutely essential for Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So mm. my development prevented me, I'm, I'm now a brown belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and the aim for every Jiu-Jitsu cat practitioner is to make black belt. The thing that is preventing me to get to black belt is the fact that because I lack the mobility to actually be able to perform the moves exactly as they should be, I have to come up with walkarounds and stuff to go around this. And this really re limits my game and it makes it very hard for me to progress. So the things that I did when I was younger prevented me from switching sports as I got older. And for me, I wish I hadn't done all of the stuff that I'd done just so I could have uh, had the opportunity to, you know, to really progress as much as I wanted at, 
was in jiu-jitsu when I was older. And I think that's like a key thing that we want to talk about here. You know, it's the long-term progression and it's things that you cannot predict because a lot of what we're going to talk about here and James is going to talk about, you know, what we kind of, how we're trying to predict future talent and everything, but we never know what you're going to do. How are you going to change sports? What are you going to do? And because I cannot, I do not have that mobility. There's a whole section of sports that I could be good at. Mm-hmm. that I'm completely blocked from doing mm-hmm. in the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's very frustrating to me. So like, I think this is a key thing that I think we should get across. And this is like, ultimately, this is the whole essence of long-term athlete development. It's the fact you do not know what your athlete's going to be good at when they get older. And therefore you have to leave the, the door doorway open to some extent. Yeah. Anyway, well, back to the chaos. Yeah, yeah. Also, I think it also comes down to like, you know, say we've got, you said about the high school coaches listening into this. And I think, a key message for any coach is, but first and foremost, it's about the athlete's health and safety, and not doing any long-term harm or damage, you know, whether in unintentionally by you know excessive workloads or excessive intensities in training or however they get their overuse and uh, burnout mentally even. It's a case of keeping that in uh, first and foremost is like, don't, don't harm, try not to harm the athletes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, one of the, one of the things I say in my, uh, my infamous, uh, sport parent slash development coach course, which is still in, uh, the final stages of, uh, construction, but anyways, is that, the problem with that random chaotic pathway, even though it's multi multi sport, which is by far the most, well, it's becoming less and less so for sure, but it's, so maybe I shouldn't say by far, but it is the most common pathway that athletes in high school will use here in the U S and I can say in Canada as well. Uh, whereas, you know, it's, it's, you know, if, uh, it's, you know, they're doing just, just like Tom said, they're doing multi sports as they get older and, and, you know, they do get a, a good all around development in some ways, but the problem is, is when they get to high, the next stage, let's call it high performance or whatever it would be in the formal LTAD model. But here that that's a, there's a definite line there and that's from high school into college training. Um, then, you know, the problem is they're not prepared for the intensity or they're injured. They're already injured because there was no, you know, um, so then the, you know, even if, even if they're not injured there, they get there. And a lot of times, you know, if, if they got there just only by doing the sport activity itself, which is good. And they were doing number sports. So it's multi, you know, multilateral in terms of their experience, they get there and then they get this, load of intensity dumped on them in a, in a lot of cases and they, they, they can't tolerate it. Right. Or they have restrictions and things like that. So, so that's a big issue. They're they're not that in a lot of cases, particularly when we're dealing with skill-based sports, they're, they're technically tactically developed to a high level, but when they make that step up to NCAA or a premiership Academy in rugby or a premiership Academy in football, they, they lack the physical development in those key areas, strength, speed, power, agility, flexibility, mobility to cope with the, the demands of the training. And that was, uh, to be honest, a big driving factor for why we set up the, the school program in the UK was the, 
to t talking to the teachers, it was clear there was kids who could put a football on a on a sixpence th 30, 40 meters away, but they couldn't sprint, they couldn't jump, they couldn't change direction effectively. And when they got found to the got to the next level, they were technically good, but they were just getting destroyed physically. And some of those boys that were there either had access to training or were just genetically more gifted and able to able to do that. So I think it's that's one of the risks of that random and chaotic development is you get loads of exposure to sport, but you don't get exposure to that physical stimulus that you need mm -hmm. to take mm -hmm. you to that next level. Like, yeah, know, there's, there's no formal, formal preparation, right? Yeah, like there's, you absolutely. know, and that's, and that's one of the things that I, I'm always trying to preach to developing coaches and I, you know, or coaches working with athletes at the developing level, high school, whatever it is, is that one of the most important things I think you need to do as a coach is, and I got not, I, this wasn't orchestrated is just the way my career worked out because I had uh, the first big successful young athlete I had was a 400 meter runner who who was being heavily recruited, uh, in the U S that's how I met Dan path. And so I, and through that meeting, through that relationship, I would go down and visit him. I've talked about this a million times, but, but I got to see what high performance athletes and elite, and I make a distinction there between the two. I think, I mean, I know that L your model, the LTAD model, um, has has a whole bunch of formal levels, which 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 I you know which essentially is very much what I've sort of done or laid out. Um, but I basically I, I see high performance as separate from elite. So uh, I think elite is the top 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 sort of end. Um, and but anyways, Dan had a group of all these athletes there. And I think you need to go and look at what that type of training is so you can actually prepare an athlete for it back at the high school level, right? Because if you don't know what they're doing, how are you going to prepare them for it, right? As opposed to going there, seeing what they're doing, going back to your situation and just mimicking it. Yeah. Right. Which is, you know, a huge problem. So, so. Okay, so we have uh, so one of the big differences in the formal LTAD model and what I've done. Um, and to be honest with you, I'm not. I mean, it was a long time ago that I I did a lot of this with. You know, I learned a lot of this through Ishvan and that. Um, and I just sort of set up my own model based on a lot of research I did. It wasn't really. It, it wasn't really based on LTAD, although it kind of, you know, it's the same idea, right? But one thing I never really got in, I never really formally implemented in my long-term long progressions was any sort of focus on these windows of, train of trainability, particularly around peak height velocity. So I, I, I want to have a discussion on that because the reason I never did was not because I didn't buy into it. And at the time, I remember, I mean, Ishvan, you know, I read all that stuff. We were going through all of this and, and this is how we set up these models for Canada. I was doing the throws model, 
But we were all in a room together. Glenroy Gilbert, uh, Les Gramantic, Wynn Gimitrosky. I mean, some of the best minds in Canadian athletics. We, and we did this for like two years. We were meeting off and on. Anyways, so, you know, in those models, we had set up these models for the windows. In my own practice back at the club, I didn't do it simply because I was one coach coaching everybody from 14 up in all events in athletics. And I just, I mean, and I'm a data collection guy, but I just couldn't see myself measuring, measuring that and, and then acting upon it. I just didn't see it as realistic for me. So I never really got into it. So why don't you take us through that? And we'll have, and we can, we can talk about, and I should also say that, you know, recently there has been, you know, some, some questioning as to whether the evidence around peak height velocity, there is evidence that it really, you know, that, that it's legitimate, blah, blah, blah. So go ahead. I think when it comes to PHV, PHV is uh, something that is experienced by all boys and girls in their adolescent life. And it's the point at which they're growing the fastest in their life, except from those first couple of years when they're, they're born. And the growth typically is around 10 centimeters a year uh, in that, in that uh, PHV window, which is around 11 to 12 on average for girls and 13 to 14 for boys. So it, it happens in every case, the, but the timing, the tempo uh, of that, that growth varies from child to child um, and can be a number of years apart for children in the same chronological age group, which is where the, the problem comes in youth sport, because you might have a boy that's gone through PHV at 12.2 years old, and he's all of a sudden got all this added strength speed, mass, power, that another boy who doesn't go through PHV till 15.7, which we've got within our academy, he's in comparison still essentially an 11-year-old boy against a 15, 16-year-old closer to a man. So the, the, dif the differences that exist, particularly for boys between 13 and 15, is, is huge. Um, and then when you consider that in the context of our sport of track and field, that creates vast, vast differences in, in someone's ability to perform with it being a speed power sport. And then there's no technical, tactical leveler like you get in, in a game of soccer or right. rugby. Like right, which is can... a very important point. Yeah, so that makes it this... Uh, the application of growth and maturation in, in a sport like athletics, I think even potentially more important for consideration with, with coaches. Now, in terms of windows of trainability, the old, um, uh, in, line, uh, in line with the old model, I think it's something which is, people have largely moved away from in terms of, I think, uh, from what I understand from other people is that coaches were previously abandoning certain types of training to solely focus on speed during the speed window and strength mm -hmm. during the strength mm -hmm. window. That's, that's um, the way I understood it for sure. Yeah, as, same, Which, same which, as, which same I couldn't as, see myself ever doing uh, no. anyways, but go ahead. Sorry. And then I think it's, it's moved more to 
training all things all the time strength power speed agility and that's really emerged with Rodri Lloyd and John Oliver's work on the youth physical development model and overlaying that with chronological age and where things should be emphasized around those that growth spurt and but what their research has gone on to look at is to f see uh, with, there's some great work by Rodri and, and John uh, Radner as well that looks at whether what was the most effective stimulus for a, someone that is pre-PHV before the growth spurt and after the growth spurt what were the most effective training methods and essentially plyometrics and speed training were more effective at changing performance uh, in sprinting and jumping tasks pre-PHV and then after PHV a combined approach of plyometrics and resistance training um, was was more effective at enhancing it probably because of the hormone profile then is it's a high level of testosterone they can really respond and adapt to that strength training stimulus so but that doesn't mean you don't do strength training pre-PHV right it's probably more just general strength training right making sure that they can move through full ranges of movement in squatting lunging pulling pushing bracing rotating gymnastic type movements hanging jumping landing mm -hmm. it's all of those skills that we're going to use and load later on but it's understanding where you're going to get the best adaptation around that window of phv and, and providing an appropriate stimulus at the at the right time okay can i just stop you there for a sec so the phv what i mean typically and i may you may have said this i might have missed it but typically how long does that period last in, uh, in chronological time do we know again, it, do we have again, i mean i'm sure it varies between athletes yeah, right? yeah. but it varies i mean puberty i guess if some of them are coming in could be two over the pubertal period couple of years for some of them some of them a little bit longer it depends on that tempo of growth so we had an example of a boy uh, who came in in grade seven we looked at his growth rates uh, retrospectively and he hit a growth rate of nearly 15 centimeters, but the spike was like a really aggressive spiker. Right. It was and 15 really centimeters. It was 50 centimeters in a very short period of time. Yes. Whereas you see others that maybe just get over seven centimeters, but that then goes Fine. on for maybe right. a longer period of time. So it might be the first year they're seven, the peak is eight, the next year it's six, the next year it's four. So it's right. usually, a, a, yeah, a, okay. those, the windows just vary. It's hard to put a, an actual duration on. Okay, so to, so to summarize sort of what you just said, so pre-peak height velocity, you know, it's, it's you know, you're, you're doing everything, but you really, it really is all about speed and skill, right? With strength being, I would say, general, not formal, I, okay? Yeah. Then you've got, peak height velocity uh, period, which might, we could say up to two years long, would you say? Is that, is that what I'm hearing? Okay. Could be. All right. And then after that, you, that's when you, when you should apply, start formally training, breaking down, I would say the, uh, the ability, speed, strength, and endurance primarily, I would guess, but I guess it depends on the sport. Um, that's what I call formalizing the training where you're actually actively targeting those different abilities. So, but back to 
that peak height velocity zone, what, what, what are the do's and don'ts in that zone? Well, I think the first thing to do is to identify where, where the athlete is in their development. So are they pre, are they circa, are they post? And we can use different prediction equations to establish where they are. And they can be done from somatic measures like height, sitting height and weight. Can use a Merwald equation, um, paper from 2002. And there's a, a, an equation for girls and boys and it allows you to estimate the years from PHV. Now there's an element of error in that, about a six month error within the equation, but it's a pretty good estimation, um, particularly in the white Caucasian population that it was developed on. Um, there's also a Karmis Roach equation, which uses the parent's height. So the biological parents, uh, mother height, father height, and then the child's height, their age, their weight. And then there's another Again, prediction equation that allows you to estimate what their predicted adult height will be, and then you can plot their current height against the predicted adult height, and you get a percentage of predicted adult height. And essentially, under 85% of predicted adult height is pre-PHV. Oh, okay. 85 to 90% is approaching PHV. 90 to 95 is circa PHV with the peak growth rate around 91 to 92%. And the takeoff for PHV generally happens at about 87% of the adult height. So that's when you start to see a really, really? wow, you can there. nail it down that, that accurately. eh? Yeah. There's a paper by a guy oh, called God. Molinari. Um, and, uh, that, detailed that yeah. average, uh, average, I think it's, I, I may be wrong. Maybe hey, just, just, wrong, just as an aside, <laughs> I was just thinking as you were as you were talking there. Are, are there does the body when when you're going through these rapid rates of growth and you're measuring the overall height, but you also said sitting height. So are there, or you mentioned it. So do the the segments of the body do they all go through it at the same time, or do yeah. does like the trunk grow faster? And and is there an order to that? There is an order. Yeah. Really? So the, the first thing you'll the first thing you'll see is uh they'll look like they've got clown shoes on so the feet grow first okay. so you so if you see a 11 12 year old 13 year old boy and his his feet are, his feet are looking out of proportion with the rest of his body he's probably entering entering well not entering but he's probably in that pre phv phase okay. and this is where the the growth related injuries also follow this pattern so if you've got a kid under 85% of predicted adult height, foot grows. Often what you see occurring at that window is severs, the issue with the, with the uh, Achilles at the heel. Oh, so okay. it's a growth-related issue. The right. next part of the body It's like Osgood slatters for the Achilles sort of thing? Yes, yeah, a growth-related right. injury. For so right. the next thing that grows is the leg. So with the leg growing, this is where you then start to see this child with huge feet, they look like they've got huge long legs and this tiny torso pitched right. on, on top of it. And obviously that. When you say them. legs, you mean, you mean both thigh and lower leg then? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then you have a, a, a greater incidence of Osgood slatters in the period where the leg is growing. 
Okay. So generally, that starts to appear between 85 and 90% in a lot of the research that's coming out of the Premier League now. Uh, and other football academies, they're looking at their injuries in, in the context of these percentages of adult height. And then from beyond that, 90% and beyond is where the torso starts to grow. So this is where you then start to see more issues around apophysitis at the hip, issues with the pars fractures in the lower back because mm. the bone is growing, but it's not at full uh, density yet. So that that's typically the pattern, foot, leg, torso, and the injury hey. follow through that um, that pattern. Yeah, I've dealt with pars fractures. So the so it's the feet, then the legs, then the then the spine. And I'm assuming the arms last, or do they grow with the spine? Good question, actually. I'd have to look that up. I can't think. I can't remember off the top of my head where that where the arms fit in the in the equation. Most of the stuff that we're talking about at the moment is is related to the lower body. So I, I can't mm -hmm. give you an accurate one without looking that do, up. To... Do we know? Do we know if 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 the ratios in terms of prop uh, limb proportion one to another uh, are the same post uh, peak height velocity that then they are pre po uh, pre peak height velocity. I, I might've said post height velocity, yeah. peak height velocity there. Uh, do we know if those are the same? And to, because to me, it's kind of relevant because one of the things that a lot of coaches, at least those who bother to look, look for um, is a long femur length relative to, um, you know, relative to trunk and lower leg, because a lot of, uh, and, and in throws, you're looking, obviously you're looking for wingspan. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I'm driving around this city, Chicago, and I see, you know, young people, uh, you know, standing on the corner, I'm like, oh my God, look at those femurs. Like, you know, you, you could, you don't need to measure, you can just see it. Like it's so much, you know? And uh, so do we know anything about that or? It's a good question. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure about wh whether the ratio changes. It's something we should probably look at from pre to post is, is there, is there a big shift? I mean, mm -hmm. one thing I would say is if you're looking at younger kids, they're generally going to be fairly in proportion in terms of the length of the leg and the length of the torso. So if you're looking for people with long, um, long, you probably, if you're going to try and make a judgment about whether someone has long legs and a short torso, you probably need to wait until they're fully grown to really be able to judge that. Because if, if you catch someone in PHV, they're going to look like that. They're going to look like they've got really long legs and a really short torso. But then all of a sudden, those ratios are going to change when they hit that latter that's part my, of the, the growth spurt. Right. That's so. my point for asking the question. Because if you, you know, if you're, if you are embarking on some kind of talent ID uh, program and you're not taking peak height velocity into account and you're choosing all your talent prior yeah. to that, <laughs> you could got, be. There's a lot of you, you yeah you could be filtering you know actually negatively filtering out athletes that you know and let's talk about that for a sec because in the notes you sent you know like like my <clears throat> one of my questions is why bother with all this and 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 that's a legitimate question okay because yeah. like like I like I said for me um it would not be easy to collect this and to, or I don't know maybe it is right I mean if you're a if you're a coach that's 
<clears throat> sort of doing all this on your own, uh, but you want to do things, quote unquote, the right way, you know, um, you, you know, why would anyone care about all of this? So let's go back to, uh, you know, in that just briefly in that zone of, of peak height velocity, what, what do you want to stay away from? And what do you want? Or is there anything? Is it just, I mean, are you, I'm, I'm going to assume you want to back off on anything intensive in terms of uh, a lot, you know, developing elastic strength, plyometric work, things like that, uh, formal strength training, you know, because there's such a rapid growth of the, of the, especially the, like the hard tissues, the bones uh, or, or passive tissues that, um, you know, there's, there's going to be some kind of, uh, uh, you know, there's a danger there. So what, what is like, what, what do you, what do you propose that we do and don't do in that period? I mean, I think one of the things is to, you don't want to throw the baby out the bathwater and do nothing because they're in PHV. It's a case of looking at them. And, and the thing is with all of this, like growth and maturation is one factor related to the athlete that we need to consider. Uh, there's also the training age of the athlete, the training competency of the athlete in each of all of these domains. So just because, for example, you get a post-PHV athlete, it doesn't mean you all of a sudden start doing your eccentrics and your depth jumping yeah, and your exactly. super yeah. maximal strength training. So it's just, I think like you talked about, I think a lot like you, Derek, in terms of these long-term progressions in training and working through them wherever you get an athlete. is like you start at the basic training, but if you start with someone post-PHV with bodyweight strength training, maybe they hit your objectives and outcomes in six to eight weeks. But maybe mm -hmm. if you start that basic set of progressions through bodyweight strength training with a uh, pre-PHV athlete, maybe it takes them a year or two to hit those outcomes and objectives right. because of their, their level of development. Now, circa right. PHV, if you've commenced training before and you come into it, I think you can continue with a lot of the training. You just need to look at what is happening to that their competency in those training skills related to those changes in rapid changes in weight so if generally coming in our boys weigh about 45 kilos to 50 kilos they'll put on 10 kilos so they've got a 20 percent increase in body mass just with phv mm -hmm. they're 10 centimeters taller so the legs longer and the trunk all of a sudden you've got that long femur and that short body mm -hmm. some of their competency in basic movements like squatting and stuff will just be all over the place so there's a a period to readjust, recalibrate mm -hmm. all of those basic movement skills to make sure that they've got control of their body. If you're playing a multi-directional sport, with PHV you increase speed. So all of a sudden you've got a heavier body that you can move faster and now you've mm -hmm. got to be able to control the momentum, a, a greater momentum and adjust your foot positioning with a longer leg a different center of mass. So there's all these things they have to re-coordinate. So I think of PHV, circa PHV as a period of recalibration, but still trying to, with the movements that fit, they still continue to get strong, but we're right. not maxing things out. Yeah, we're, we're, not, we're not pushing the envelope. No, not, but, not squeezing so too hard, but we're trying to get strong in the positions that we can still hold good positions. So it might be, We've got examples of boys at the moment that can't squat for shit. Like right. they're, they're just all over the place. Right. But they can hold a really nice split squat position 
or they can mm -hmm. hold a really nice trap bar deadlift position and we're not talking deadlift in massive loads. Mm -hmm. So we're just moving those exercises on but we're keeping them in ranges of intensity that are not excessive. Right, right. You know, we might be in the 60 to 70% zone rather than the 80 to 90% zone. Right. Okay. Hey, Tom, can you pipe in here a little bit about what you guys do, like how you've, you know, how you implement it at Aspire and, you know, maybe what it looks like? Yeah, sure. I mean, one of the great things about working at Aspire is we work in a team. So each, uh, each kind of like year well, group. One of the great things is you have a team. Yeah, well, that's the great thing. But uh, one of the great things about that is we meet every week in our team and typically for each each year group we have two coaches approximately and then we have james in there and we have some other people and so we meet and we discuss training and we discuss athletes and like for me as a coach one of the things that i think james brings across to me which i didn't have before aspire before people someone was looking at this uh maturation stuff is that he'll come in and he'll say oh that kid i've noticed his feet are growing maybe you should be a little bit careful about repeated rebound jumps let's just say um and so the coach then goes oh yeah maybe this week we're, we're going to do, I don't know, 50 contacts. And so this kid's going to do 30. And then when they get a little bit older and it moves from severs, which we talked about before to Oscar Schlatter's, then maybe James has another point about some part of our program. We might not do as much with, with that athlete. And then at a later stage, we go to apothecitis and I actually wanted James to explain what that was because it's very important in, uh, in, in sports. We have hip flexion, which for us especially is like hurdles. Then again, you might want to reduce the amount of hurdling you do at that point when they're going through the point where they might be susceptible to that because this is an injury to the hip. So um, each of these things that someone like James is looking at can do, they can give me some insight that might help me to change my program a little bit uh, to reduce the chances that athlete getting injured. Because for me, there's a couple of important things. Right, the one, the first thing is that when this athlete gets injured, what happens? They usually stop coming to training, and they stop coming to training. At that age, they might lose interest in the sport. They might move into another one, which may not right. be important. But also, like, they feel like they're falling behind their friends. They lose out in their social circle. Like, it affects lots of other things as well. So, for me, having someone looking at that probably helps us to keep more boys training for longer and uh, keep them motivated. Uh, so, James, can you just tell us a little bit about the apothecitis thing? Because I know we didn't really cover that. And I, I know before I got to spa, I didn't know what this was and I hadn't seen it. Uh, so, maybe you could just give us a bit of detail on that. Yeah, I mean, the A, you get it, the anterior iliac spine or the superior iliac spine, the hip, and it's it's a growth-related injury. And essentially, it flare, it seems to flare up in our population with sprinting and hurdling. Um, and it, it can relate to the when the, the leg is growing uh, rapidly. Obviously, the bone grows first, and then that puts the muscle under tension it gets tighter and then some of these boys particularly then when they spend a lot of time sat down playing playstation they're physically inactive over the summer they then come back they go to sprint the muscles tight and you get this uh, aggravation on the anterior portion of the the hip so that in as simple terms there's people like their physios that would be able to give you a much more medical mm -hmm. definition and explanation but in layman's terms, that's that's essentially what's happening. So, do um, they end up with a forward pelvic tilt? Is that the idea? I think that's part because normally I mean, a formal or a forward pelvic tilt would be would be um, uh, would be diagnosed as uh, tight 
iliopsoas type hip flexors, right? Or of the the strong hip flexors, let's say. So is that? Yeah, I mean, it could be also like weakness, uh, the inability to control that that right. pelvic position and, and and resist it, getting into anterior excessive anterior tilt right. when they're running. Yeah, exactly. So I think it, it emphasizes around that. What we need to do around that point is really get back to teaching these boys whose torso has completely changed shape, it's increased. They've now got to be able to stabilize their pelvis when they can produce much greater forces when they're sprinting. They've got a longer stride length. So being able to control at the core, that pelvic position will stop them getting into those hyperlordotic positions that will create this additional stress, not only on the front of the hip, but also at the lumbar spine. So mm. that, that area is also sensitive at the same time where we can end up with cases of spondylosis, particularly in boys that are very, very explosive type 2 mm. X-type athletes. Really? They, okay, they, that's they, interesting. They, they can just expose themselves to much greater forces than, than other kids. And I think bullet, trying to bulletproof that area in terms of their ability to brace and control the pelvis, but also emphasizing correct running technique, um, and, and again, it's recalibration and re-education of that running technique with the changes in the body. Now, I think how, those- how does this injury uh, manifest itself? Like, how does it how does it present itself? Is it pain in the hip? Yeah, pain in the hip. Doing Just what? Like, we've had different cases of it where it's like an avulsion, like so. Okay. Part of its come, part of the right. uh, attachment has come away. Really? Um, wow. There's, there's, there's various. Forms. As I say there's other people that can explain that a lot better than, than we so, can. So, you but. know, that's that's really interesting because in your notes, and that's this walks right into what I want to talk next, is that in your notes uh, or in the notes that we set up for this use, you know, I when I asked, you know, why bother with all this, you, you said, well, you know, uh, you made a really good point. Like kids that don't deal with these issues or kids that are early specialized, I guess, uh, how, what am I trying to say here? They, they take the place of other kids, right? So kids that yeah. are late matures yeah. or um, will have less opportunity because they don't identify themselves as talent. And what we, what you just discussed with this injury in a high school setting here in North America, well, that kid just self-selected themselves out of, out of the sprints, because just like Tom said, right. It's like, you know, they, they're injured. Oh, I can't sprint. So they don't bother. Right. They move yeah. on to something else. Right. And so, whereas if someone kind of, you know, if, a, if the coach had an awareness of this, at, you know, maybe they're going through this growth spurt, they could just modify the program, get this thing looked at. And then you've got an athlete that gets through this circa PHV it goes away. Will it go away on its own if you if you just left it alone? Or if, well, I mean, they, I, you know, we're going to probably would if they don't continue to push it, sprint on it for a while. It will right. it'll, it'll right. settle back down in the same way that right. most of us probably got through. I, I remember having Osgood Slatters terribly at thirteen, fourteen, and but I got through it. But it right. wasn't through good management. It was through just white knuckling it to continue playing yeah. sport. But I think. Right. 
yeah, I think it's it, it's something which ideally would be managed. And one of the mm. things that we're doing a lot more of, uh, or one of the big ways our program has changed at Aspire in the in the three years now is just total work, total volume of work around the the growth spurt. So when I arrived at Aspire, the the first year athletes did eight sessions a week. Now they do five mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. we know that the first year athletes are the ones that. If you look at the distribution of where they sit in those maturation groups, they're primarily approaching PHV and circa PHV. So if we put eight sessions on them the moment they join an Aspire, give it two months and they're going to blow up with lower leg Mm. issues, Osgoods. It's all going to come out if we don't manage that load. And then it's the distribution of the work across the week as well. So right. Right, not just taking the workload of eight and shoving it into five. No, 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 reducing it, (laughs) reducing it down, getting rid, getting rid of three days, and actually splitting, splitting some of those those five sessions up and leaving a day off completely in the middle of the week. Right, right, Tom, 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 how was that in terms of uh, getting your coaches to uh, to buy into that? Actually, uh, or is is it, or did you just order them to? No, no, no. So I think one of the cool things is that like. Um, one of the learnings that we've had this year is because of COVID it's reduced the amount of training we can do. So we had two things that happened at Aspire natural experiments. The first one was that we had our, uh, our indoor track was like shut for a period of time or was our outdoor track. Anyway, one of our tracks was shut for a period of time. So we had to turn the grass for three months at the beginning of the year. And we saw a rapid uh, reduction in injuries when that happened. And the second thing is COVID came along that stopped some of the athletes training and then when we did get come back to training it meant they were training once a day rather than uh the twice a day because they weren't at school so they didn't have the opportunity to train twice a day and the coaches noticed we had better performances so then the coaches are coming to you saying hey we're getting better performances do we want to go back to eight sessions a week and some of them have gone back to uh, eight sessions a week but now we've reduced loads in each session or more recovery Mm -hmm. sessions and stuff Mm -hmm. so a lot of this is also driven by the the coaches and you know, we were talking about one of the like, why does PHV matter? Well, for me as a head coach perspective, I've got like a detached position that I'm looking at, okay, who are the athletes that are going to come through that in our case are going to make world juniors or maybe going to go on to be an Olympic athlete or a world you know, championship level athlete. And one of the things that I noticed very clearly is that coaches gravitate towards athletes that are doing well, which tend to be the athletes that are post PHV. Mm-hmm. Okay. Or are the earlier materials. And this has a couple of things one is that they change their opinion a lot about which athletes are good the second thing is when someone is circa phv and you've got someone that's post phv who's the more fun athlete to coach the one that can concentrate the one that isn't doing stupid stuff all the time because they're now more mature and so they ignore that or they don't it doesn't happen like this in aspire but there is a temptation to ignore or to go oh that kid's not behaving or whatever so we're not going to like work with them so much and that's fine and everything if the athlete's got in our situation, that's fine if they've got zero talent, but imagine if they're really good or if you don't know they're really good yet. And so I think there's multiple reasons why this stuff can be useful that we just don't think about. And as I said, being in a team and having these people with different perspectives, you know, myself being very detached, James being the maturation side of things, other coaches having different opinions is that we get different opinions from everybody and it helps us to understand the, the problem better. Whereas if you're a coach on your own, you don't notice this stuff because you're just going ahead doing your thing and you don't have these other opinions because no one else is working with your athletes. So I think this is okay. a great thing that we've, like it's a great 
benefit to having the system that we have and it, it helps us to see the positive things from it and mm-hmm. why it could be useful and just the things like you know we talked about trainability windows well for me maybe trainability windows isn't the right thing anymore maybe now the thing is as james said like periods where they're more susceptible to certain injuries and therefore you need to back off on certain things which are really the mm-hmm. windows that you you might be talking about i mean right no but there's, there's right. multiple factors uh, there james what are your thoughts so so uh, go ahead i think the other big the big thing that i what i'm trying to do for the coaches now derek is we've got all this data around maturation and we've also got a ton of data around competition results we've got a ton of data on physical testing sprinting 10-5 rebound jump cmj's relative powers isometric force something that no one has really quantified in athletics is how much difference does it make if you're pre-phv circa phv or post-phv to the speed that you can sprint or the distance at which you, which you hit max velocity, or how much force you can put out, or the relative power you can produce in a counter-movement jump. So when you collect this data, which we've done now for the best part of three years consistently, and since we've reshaped the testing battery, but now we're at a point where we can actually say and evaluate each athlete against standards that are relevant not only to their age, but to their level of maturity. So we can say, okay, this boy's 15. Okay, the average sprint velocity for a 15-year-old is 8.5 meters per second. But that athlete's pre-PHV. And the average velocity for a pre-PHV athlete is only 6.8 meters per second. Mm -hmm. But he's running 7.2. So he's probably one and a half standard deviations above the pre-PHV standard, but still... Relative to the... relative to his age group if you only look at his age group he's poor and we've done the same thing for 60 meter performance long jump performance so you can begin to look at an athlete wherever they are and say and give a more realistic perspective on how are they performing right now for their age and their biological age and what that does is it can give you two completely contrasting perspectives on how they're performing in both directions so you could have a kid who's smashing everybody by age group but you look at him by bio band because he might be say he's grade seven he's 13 years old he comes in he kills everyone in the 60 meter sprint but actually he's a post phv athlete so when you look at him in the standards of his biological age he's actually way below average but he's better than every everyone in his age so everyone's raving about him all the coaches mm-hmm, want mm-hmm, him mm-hmm. but the realistic thing is that that kid might probably isn't the kid who's going to be the best when it comes to three, four, five years down the line and the playing field is going to get leveled. Can you define bioband? You mentioned it a few times. In yeah, the yeah, sure. So bioband is um, it's just a, another name for a maturity group. So the biobands that we are using are those percentages of predicted adult height. So but pre-PHV bioband is uh, under 85% approaching PHV 85 to 90, 90 to 95% of predicted adult height is circa PHV, and 95% and above of predicted adult height is post PHV. Okay. So we then group the athlete based on their percentage of predicted adult height and group all our data in order to be able to evaluate that. So we group the data by age and we group the data by uh, maturity group or biological age band okay okay cool interesting okay so that was great 
Okay. Now I'm going to hit you with something. Okay. <laughs> and this is definitely, if you guys could do this, I think this is going to be a couple of podcasts because we haven't even got past peak. Well, we're just about to go past it, but okay. I get it all and I buy into it. Okay. But I'm thinking, you know, a coach listening to this, who is, there's two issues. Okay. Big issues here. And I'm going to call it North America. Okay. Uh, where, and I'm sure it's the same in, I know it's the same in Britain because, and I'm sure you can back me up on that coming from a, a state high school in, uh, in Britain, but you know, number one, how is one coach going to, going to manage all of this? Okay. And number two here, especially you cannot overstate the pressure to develop kids, um, you know, to put, to start them off, like get them going, you know, hard and fast because by grade 11, they got to start producing marks in order to get a scholarship. Okay. Now I have a, I, I'm playing devil's advocate here. So let's say that you, you know, you, well, let's say you're like me, right? You, you buy into all this, you say, okay, this is something I need to, I need to consider. Okay. But I'm not, maybe I'm not prepared to collect the data. What is a safe bet in terms of putting together a program and by safe bet, I mean, what would, where would you put uh, uh, the starting line for the formal development of the different abilities? So you, let's say you're getting into formal strength work now. Okay. Uh, post PHV. All right. But you want to pick a date that's pretty safe in terms of, you don't know, you know, you're not sure where everybody else is. Um, or sorry, you're not sure where all the athletes are in terms of their peak height velocity, but you want to, but you want to put together a long-term progression and, you know, like, where would you start that to be safe that everybody is post PHP and you don't want it to be 18. Right. No. So for me, that, that line has always been around 14 years of age, yeah. right? Now, I may have missed it for some, like maybe that's too late for some, and maybe that's a bit too early for some, but I'm just trying to be realistic here, right? Like how do you know? Well, the average, the average age for boys is 14, 13 to 14. Post? Uh, 13 to 14 to be in the growth spurt. Okay. That's the, that's the thing. You'll have boys that go through as young as 12 and boys as young as 16. But if you go up 14, you've probably captured the vast majority of, of them uh, that, uh, or a large proportion of them that have gone through. We don't, see, we don't seem to see so many late developers in our system, but that's possibly due to selection biases, not including them. But right. if you consider anything with a PHV over 15.1 is considered late, then and anything under 13.1 years for PHV is considered early for boys. Mm -hmm. um, if you draw the line at 14 to start formal training, then I think it's probably You're not. Safe. Well, and I it's should not, say... It's not, it's not a bad place. If you wanted to right. be confident that they were all post-PHV, you'd probably say 16, but you're going to miss a lot of 
training, right. development opportunities. So I think rather than, I, that's why I like to think less, maturation is important and we've put a lot of emphasis on this, but that's where I think the training competency and training age thing comes in. Because I think you can be, if you're just, say you commence strength training at around 12 years old, but we're doing it in body weight form, we're talking about gymnastics and parkour and all the good stuff. But then through those processes, they're learning maybe through short warm-ups, all the squat movements and everything. Then I think you can probably start the formal training once they've reached, there's a great sister uh, assessment system, Dan Baker's body weight strength training. Are they, how strong are they against those standards for body weight? Mm -hmm. Because if they can't do those things against body weight, why are we putting a barbell on them? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So I think that's, that's more it is like, just check off those boxes. And if they're competent and they can, let's say they can do a sandbag squat with 15 kilos with really good form or something like that, then well, the next, what, where'd you go next? Well, the next progression probably is to introduce a 20 kilo bar, but right. you know, it's probably still only half the, half the, half the athlete's body weight or less right. at, uh, at 13, 14 years old. So I think it's, it's more working appropriate progressions, but if we're talking about then really commencing formal training with, you know, linear progression of sets and reps and intensities, mm -hmm. then that's probably where you want to you want to be more yeah. confident that they are post PHV. But if we're just talking about getting strong and learning movements, I think earlier earlier than that is is right. is fine. It's more about the approach you take to doing that, and it should just be less structured, um, less intense and mm. ideally more enjoyable mm -hmm. than than what most kids will find at 12 years old mm -hmm. with formal strength training. So I should also say here that a natural in Canada, the natural dividing line. And one of the reasons I started another reason why I started at 14 was because that's when high school starts in Canada. In yeah. the U S it's 15. It's grade yeah. nine. Right now that that doesn't stop coaches from, <laughs> kicking the shit out of them before that. But we know at 15, they're, they're probably, probably changing schools and they're, they're starting, you know, that's when things do start to get, you know, if they're very involved in sport, depending on the sport and depending on where they are, that's when things start to amp up. So that's probably a decent dividing line, but what I, but, you know, I mean, the way I've always approached it is, yeah, you, you, you are going to like, I'm going through this right now with my new job. I got, I, I don't have a lot of kids, but there's a huge range between the, you know, I have a young kid who's very physically young as well. And I have, uh, uh, the old, uh, he's, uh, 13, um, and he's the youngest. And I have a, another kid who just, just turned 16, I think. And he's, a he's, a he's an early mature. Okay. And so, you know, I, so I've written a, a program for each of these kids and I have two other kids. I only have four in this one program. I have other kids I coach, but in this one program. So I've written four programs because I've have two other kids that are in between each sort of along that the, in between those two sort of evenly spaced out. Actually, So for the youngest kid, I've, I've written, uh, a program, which is right where I would start with the 14 year old, but you know, day one, 
I, I had to adapt all of it. Once I could, once I actually got him, you know, uh, uh, some dumbbells in his hands and to see what he could do with, a with some unilateral contralateral patterns in the, in the, in strength, I had to, I had to just drop everything, right? I had to drop the loads just down to body weight because this kid yeah. couldn't, can't do it. So the point is you have to look, right? Yeah. Like you have Absolutely. to fucking observe and, and you can't just put a program up there and just force everybody through it and say, well, you know, whoever survives, you know, yeah. I mean, you know, that kid can't do it. Well, he's a shitty athlete. Yeah. Well, let me tell you something, man. I just watched a video of a guy that I've gotten to know lately. Uh, he's been on the podcast, Patty McGrath, who coaches. Uh, oh, he, he, he's, he's kind of like us in that he's coaches right along the spectrum, which is unusual here, right? Like it's usually coaches fall into high school or NCAA or elite, but this guy, this guy is like starts them. They may go off to college, but then, you know, they come back and he finishes them. So Rudy Winkler, who just, I don't know if you know who that is, but he just broke the, the one of the longest standing American records, uh, which is Lance Steele's hammer record. He threw eight eighty two seventy one. He started Rudy Winkler when he was a kid. And I was watching a video the other day, like Rudy Winkler at 12 or th I think at the, in this, this video, it's a presentation Patty was giving. And he had this picture, he had a video of Rudy throwing when he, his first ever weight throw meet. And he was like 12 or something. I mean, the kid, Looks like this kid. I was just describing my youngest kid in my program. You would not look at the Rudy. You would not look at Rudy Winkler and go, "Oh my God, that guy's going to be one of the top hammer. He's going to be the number one hammer thrower in the world in uh, you know in ten years time or or whatever." And he is. I don't think he was number one this year. He, yeah, I, I I think he might have been. But anyways, holds American record. Mm. So yeah, I, you know, I, I think. Go ahead. One of the well, I think. I've mentioned doing this a, a few times to guys on just general discussions and podcasts, but I think one of the trickiest things is what you described there, Derek. And if you take that to a high school and you take that to a class of 30, you've got 30 kids at 13 to 14 years old that could are in vastly different places. So where do you begin? And my, my default is to, to start with a very, very simple program and use it as a diagnostic tool to see what is appropriate. And I, I, my, my menu of exercises for that are a counterbalance squat, just holding a plate out in front of them, uh, or even a body weight squat in the warm-up. Just can they keep their feet flat on the ground? Can they get their hip below their knee? Can they keep their back parallel to their shin and their chest up? That's my first diagnostic. Then maybe I give them the, the five kilo plate in front of them to see, okay, if we give them five kilos, does that squat, squat still look as good or does it look terrible? Then for a push-up, it might be that they start on an incline push-up. Can they do a push-up on an incline to a, a bar in a squat rack? Oh, they can. Okay, move it down and just like a leveled progression. Mm -hmm. can, they do a, can they do a split squat, just static standing split squat and keep the right position? full mm -hmm. range of movement. If they can't, then maybe we've got to regress that to a, mm -hmm. a bottom-up split squat where they start in kneeling in the bottom of the split squat and just push up. Or maybe they've got it and we can progress through lunges and walking lunges quite quickly. 
-hmm. then I'll use a horizontal pull, either inverted row underneath a bar, again in the squat rack, or a, a TRX strapped to the wall. Can they, can they pull horizontally and hold a straight line body position? And I think if you do that push-up and you do that TRX, you get to see something about the, the way that they're able to hold their, their body, their core strength. You can see them through a deep flexion and extension pattern in the squat and a lunge pattern to see what they can control. And then simple front plank, side plank, what can they actually brace and, and, and hold their body in those simple movements? And I think if you start your first session like that, one, you're not going to hurt anybody. And two, you're going to get a pretty good gauge very quickly on those basic patterns that we would all go to with our strength training program in probably block zero, where we're just starting. Yeah. But it gives you a it gives you an opportunity to see them in a safe a safe program, and then from there you can almost it's almost like a traffic light system, red light on this guy, amber light on this guy. He needs to stay here and just let's drill the body weight, let's drill the patterns. Can they get into those positions? Can they hold those positions? Can they get out of them? Can they repeat them? And then you might have a green light guy who just smashes through that program like it's no problem. Well, he's maybe the guy then that comes back and does a goblet squat next time and he's doing mm -hmm. his push-ups on the floor and maybe he does a really low TRX row and a bit of load goblet loaded split squat or something and maybe his progression is much quicker but I think if you've got your progressions mapped out particularly when you're working at a high school level I like having a leveled system um, I can send you the pro progression grid mm -hmm. one to seven of squat movements one mm -hmm. to seven of lunge push-up all just progressing in complexity, not load. Right, Different right. variations of those movements. And then you can just scale boys and girls up and down those movements depending on their technical competency. And usually if they've worked through all of those levels, they're probably ready to do something with a bit more external load, but it doesn't mean it has to be that, that crazy program. But I think that's quite a practical way. And like you say, it's, it's using that observation of those kids and their skills in that training environment and you could apply that to any form of physical development their sprint training program their biometric yeah. program their agility program can they do those basic the basic fundamentals in each of those domains and what's the appropriate starting point what's their point a and then where are we we probably i like this uh i don't know if you've heard gareth sanford speak recently no. he described this abz framework a is where the athlete is. Z is where you're trying to get to. So in our realm, that's elite sport, right. high-performance sport, qualifying for Olympic Games or World Championships. B is what's the next step from A. We know where we're trying to go. We know where we are. But what's the next logical step? And I think that's a really nice framework to apply with young athletes. I, I, would, I would say there, I've said this before, that it just so, in my opinion, it just so happens because I know what the response is going to be to that. The response is going to be from a lot of coaches. Well, we're not producing elite athletes. That's not our goal. Our okay. goal is our goal. But I, I would argue that what the progressions you're going to use for that, that are good quote unquote, or, you know, along all the, along all the uh, all the things that we're talking about here just so happen to also be the same ones you would do for anybody I think yeah. to, to, to make yeah. it you know it's not it's not different it's not different and and you know and the second thing I would say about all this is that 
this is where organization comes in because if you are not organized as a development coach, and I'm going to tell you right now, man, I, I say this with hundred percent confidence. It takes far more organization around, around uh, training structure to coach developmental athletes, high school athletes, whatever you want to call them, pre post PHV circuit, whatever, whatever athletes in that youth, youth development range takes way more, way more organization to coach them than it does elite athletes, because you have so many more variables that you have to consider. Right. And in my opinion, so in other words, everything you just said that you, you gave a whole, a great range of examples there. Right. So for me and my program, what it was is I took Dan Paff's um, structure of training, the way he organized training when I first on one of those trips down to Texas when I was a young coach and I adapted it to what I want. You know, I adapted it to developmental athletes. So in other words, it's like a training manual with a number of it's essentially an organized exercise inventory that I would have all written on. There's hundreds and hundreds of exercises in this. And I would just make sure I just basically bulletproof the program itself so that regardless of what age you're at, you're going to be working on certain things all the time. But particularly at those, at that 14, 15 year old age group, you're, there's certain things that you're going to be doing. It's built into the structure of how I organize. Yeah, yeah. Number one is a lot of, you know, you start from the core and you work out number one, right? Because if that's not, it doesn't matter what else you do. Not that you're going to, you know, not that you only do core strength, core, you know, abdominal back hip strength, not that you only do that before you let them do anything else, but that is a real, you know, it's a high priority objective. High, very well put. Right. And so I would have, you know, I would have Swiss ball circuits. I would have balance circuits. I would have, you know, all of my jumping circuits uh, were organized in a way that when you look at the sheet, they go from general down to more specific and blah, blah, blah. I could go on and on about it. And, and there were, you know, I organized them around movement planes, organized them around, you know, uh, universe versus uh, bilateral movements. Not that I was exclusive to any of those, but those, just like you said, you know, some, some patterns, some, movements, some areas of the body, however you want to look at, they were, they were a priority at that age. And if you were in the program, you were going through that, whether you liked it or not. Right. Yeah. But being, this is my point of all this is being organized like that gives you the freedom to walk around during workout and ascend or descend things accordingly. Because yeah. if you're not organized, you don't have it all written out in terms of like, you know, in an inventory and you don't have a structure and you don't have something on paper that where you philosophically, where you know where you want to go, then you're, you're trying to make those decisions on the fly, which you, you, well, I don't know. I mean, maybe if you're a genius, you, you can do that. I'm certainly not. And I forget I shit because, you know, I'm terrible. I, you know. I agree. I mean, look, let, if you look, I think of long-term, I, I learned a lot from going into teaching and spending a year as a PE teacher and looking at curriculums and, and what do you do in a school? If you changed, you, the way I think a lot, um, a lot 
Imagine if you just went into school and every year the teacher made up something new that they wanted to teach. Or, but no, we, we know roughly, you could probably say now what 90% of the kids that are going to come into your program, if you're in there, what they're going to look like when they come in, what their training experience is going to be for your specific area, your region. You probably know what sports they play. You probably know that they haven't done any strength training and they definitely won't have heard of plyometrics and they've probably never done any speed or agility training. So you're going to have to teach them all those things. So if you, if you map out those progressions, you're, just, you're creating a curriculum for athletic development which has logical progressions and objectives that build on each other phase on phase that take that athlete on a journey. But that athlete's journey isn't going to be dramatically different to any other athlete that comes in. Mm -hmm. There's going to be nuances and differences mm -hmm. related to when they go through this growth spurt, the exposure they've had to different forms of training. If you get someone in who's had a gymnastics background, they're probably going to have a very high level of body control and you might be able to do things a little, move them on a little bit faster. But essentially, for probably 90% of the kids, you're going to have to teach them the same thing. And the kids that come in the year after and the year after and the year after, they're going to all have to go through a very, very similar mm -hmm. process. You, you just, you don't have to recreate the wheel. Yeah. And you don't have to yeah. write 30 individual programs. Yeah, You've got I, one totally program agree. with yeah. 30 tweaks and adjustments on the fly. But if you come into our, our development sessions, you'll see everyone's squatting at the same time. But there might be three or four different variations of a squat. Right. Right. Then they're pushing right. at the same time. Someone's doing a push-up. Someone's doing one on the floor. Someone's doing some dumbbells. Could be anything. And I think that's what you've described as the white, right. I'm biased. It's my way of approaching it. Is It's a curriculum. And a curriculum with a syllabus of movements in each of those domains. Yeah, and those I, I, movements, Human movement hasn't changed. Human movement is yeah, the absolutely. same. Absolutely. And it, and it, and it isn't going to change. There's a finite number of ways that the body moves but there's a million different exercises. Mm -hmm. But if you mm -hmm. focus on those baseline movements and qualities, you won't, go, you won't get too lost in the Instagram world of ridiculous exercises and everything. Totally, else. I so agree with that. And I'm gonna let Tom pipe in here in a second, but I'll, I'll, you know, I'll say this. I say this all the time, right? It's, and I don't want people to misinterpret what I'm about to say, but I say, look, like the minutia of all of this, this period from when an athlete starts sport to, you know, whatever enters into high performance, the, 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 uh, the range we're talking about here, the minutia of it in terms of the exact exercise and this, that, and the other thing is to me is not as important as the fact that you actually have a progression, right? Like, you know, what exactly you're doing at each, uh, yeah, that's super important, right? I told, you know, like, I mean, it, it, you know, I think there should be certain things that need to be addressed at each stage, however you divide your stage or whatever. But the fact that you, if you just have a fucking progression and you are organized, you are ahead of 99% of the coaches working with athletes in this range to begin with, right? 100%. And, and that can actually be a detriment to you here because you, you know, you like you could walk into one facility and you'll see 14 and 15 year olds doing what you just described. You walk into another one with 14 and 15 year olds doing 
something completely different. Okay. How is a parent supposed to know that? How is a parent supposed to know what is good? Because, you know, things I know in Canada, this has been moving this way for decades, but it's starting to move that way here too. The younger you go is that, you know, the school programs are getting, you know, they're starting to take a hit and COVID really kind of amped that up. So the private, this whole private sector, SNC athlete preparation industry is growing. And I think there's a need for it for sure. And I know some guys here, it's a guy named Pete uh, Arroyo that I talk to all the time. And I see him all the time out, out in Aurora where I am or Naperville and, or where I work, not where I am, but anyways, and you know, him and I talk all the time, but you know, but there are some that are doing it very well and there are some that aren't right. And then you've got the high school coaches, right? So, I mean, it's, it's, you know, how, <laughs> It's crazy. Like it's, it's a complicated thing. And, and so I, I say, I say, to, I say to parents, you know, do they have the first thing they should be able to tell you is there's something that this, that distinguishes, you know, like if you walk in there and at 14, all you ever see, and I'm not saying that if you see these exercises, I'm saying that if all you see them doing is squats, cleans, bench, that's a red flag to me, right? Like that's a red flag because there's, there, okay, those, not that those exercises are bad. I do them with athletes at that age, but, but if that's all you're seeing, that's a problem. That's telling you something. Definitely. Right. So Tom, sorry, did you want to pipe in here on any of this? Cause I think, I think, you know, we're, we're on at an hour and 40 and I mean, I think this is a good natural place to sort of end our first discussion. I would like to, I, I would just, I'm dying to start talking about speed and strength right now, but I think that's going to be another podcast because that's going to be a big one. So Tom, did you want to pipe in or what? Yeah. Well, I was thinking that, um, you know, you started this, this discussion with this last question it's gone on for about 20 minutes about you know the fact that there's pressure for athletes to perform at a good level and that's no different in aspire than it is anywhere anywhere else you know one of the metrics we're looking at is how many athletes can we get to world junior championships and if you're talking about getting ncaa scholarship mm -hmm. we have so many athletes now that are getting approached for ncaa scholarships you know we've got four or five athletes in the ncaa we've got more coming next year and you know, we have a structured program, we have all this stuff there, but I think we've been talking about the physical a lot there, you know, in the last section. And for me, if you have good technical coaching, which is the thing that we really have in Aspire compared to what I would have seen in a club setting or, you know, maybe a high school setting, if you have great technical coaching, then that is super important. And that is the thing that accelerates the, the athlete from my side, at least in track and field. Like, so let's say take throws as the example. We have a lot of athletes qualifying for world juniors and achieving the standards in the throws. And yeah, in the last two years, they're pushing the numbers on the weight room quite a lot, but they're getting good technical training from a younger age. Also in the sprints and hurdles, we're doing mm. really well because we have excellent technical hurdle coaching from grade seven, from 12, 13 years old. And mm. in the UK, you'd struggle to find many clubs that even do hurdles. And yet we have every athlete doing hurdles and some of them stop in grade nine and they go and do flat sprinting or long jump or whatever. But all of our athletes can basically hurdle by the time they're in grade nine. So I think, you know, you've got the technical side as well that I think is important. And, uh, you know, it doesn't, we're not also, we're achieving these technical results and we're not spending an hour 
only doing hurdles. We're doing them in 20, 30 minute blocks. Mm -hmm. So we're not talking about yeah, huge amounts point. of, of, of work. We're not and in our endurance program. We just had a guy make a semi-final at world juniors last year. And this guy is basically running three to four times a week. And he has a specific profile that means makes him a pro for him, but he's, he's not training 10 times a week, you know, within, with running necessarily. So I think, you know, you can achieve for the athletes that are capable, you can definitely achieve these high performance, uh, outcomes you know in terms of making world juniors maybe getting into double a scholarship you don't have to go completely crazy but in the last year if you're not quite there then you can push those strength areas you don't have to start in grade mm -hmm. seven you know at 12 years old 13 years old 14 years old we start it after grade nine basically yeah you know what um i'm gonna say something and then i'm gonna let james have the last word and then i'm gonna sign off this one so i say all the time and I'll, I'd be interesting to hear what James says about this, that, you know, specialization is not a dirty word, right? There is, you know, you have to understand, well, re remember that talk you and I had in, uh, in Loughborough that time, Tom, where we were just chatting and I just sort of offhand, I said, yeah, you know, people don't understand the difference between specificity and specialization, right? And First, I, I, I talk about this all the time because yeah. I have so many people coming to me and saying, oh, you're a specialized in the athlete because they're doing hurdles. And I'm like, just because you're grade eight doesn't mean you don't do any athletics. Yeah, exactly. It means you're not specializing. Exactly. Through specific exclusive well you're going to just find now so let you let you go ahead and no 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 i totally agree but having said that also specialization starts at 12 13 whatever the age it's not something it specialization is not some you know line you cross when you get to you know 18 and then all oh now i'm specializing right it's a it's a process. It's a, it's a, uh, James will put this far better than I, but it's a, it begins at the younger ages, uh, probably even earlier than I'm saying really that I'm talking about. And, and it's, it's again, it's more about how it's implemented, how it's progressed. James, what do you think about that? I, would, I agree. I think if you look at the textbook definition of early specialization, it's actually, that the athlete is engaged year round in a single sport. And I think if you've got, you can have a specialized pathway. If you look at the English Premier League or maybe use Aspire as, a, as, an, as an athlete, it's an athletics pathway that they've been selected for. But those pathways are providing high quality training, technical, tactical, and physical development for, with the aim of producing athletes for a sport, but they are diversified by other sports within that academy right. curriculum. Right. So like Tom mentioned, our guys are doing gymnastics at a development level, grade seven, eight, nine, they do gymnastics once a week. They might even do some parkour type work with us as warm-ups another time a week. They do swimming, they do cycling. For some of them, they learn to swim at Aspire a life skill, uh, valuable, valuable life skill that some of them don't have when they arrive. They play handball, they play basketball, they play, they, we have a climbing wall in the gymnastics hall. We have all sorts that is there to make sure that they are having a rounded development, but they are having specialist coaching in an area that we believe they have talent and potential to do something great in the future. 
And for us particularly, if you look at Qatar, you're dealing with a population of 2.6 million people. 2.3 million of them are like me and Tom. They're expats. They are not Qatari. Mm-hmm. So we have a very, very small talent pool to develop mm-hmm. it from. So we, I think it's more about early engagement in great coaching than specialization. Yeah, it's that's like, a good point. Yeah. I think early engagement with great coaches, with people that understand the development process, the progressions in technical, tactical, physical, then I think it's a good thing. Yeah, yeah. I, in the sport parent course, I started off by saying, look, you know, this whole thing can be boiled down to two things. Um, get your kid in the right environment and then get out of the way. Right. Yeah. And then I go on to blab on forever about what does environment mean. And number one in that is coaching. Right. Like it's, you know, that's the first and foremost is that's if it's good, great coaching, everything else. Is, and the athlete, you know, is motivated or talented or whatever, uh, has desire has ambition, then it's all going to work out. All the other stuff is, is good, but anyways, let's end there. Uh, Tom's got his hand up. Oh, like, Tom's got his hand. Here we go. Here we go. I thought, we were, I thought we were at school. So I put my hand up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We are. Uh, I am. Yeah, I, I was going to say, like, I mean, we had that discussion. I love that discussion where we said you can be specific without specializing, mm-hmm. but you can't specialize without being specific. I think that's the quote that you gave me, and I, I love that. But for me as well, using your Bondachuk uh, hierarchy, I'm looking to see how much SDE, specific development exercises, you're having in their program. And when you see that being a high, a high amount of their program, then you'll probably know that they're starting to really specialize. That's how I do it myself. Exactly. But that's like, so well put. You, yeah. you know, there's lots of ways you can talk about it, whether it's yeah. academic or philosophical or whatever else it is. But anyway, well, th- those, those are the exercises that Bonderchuk focuses on in terms of driving long-term form. Right. I mean, I mean, you're always going to do the CE. It is what it is. And SPE and GPE are, are, you know, their, their preparation, but it's the SDE. Those are the ones that you got to be careful with and they're important, super important, but they have to be managed properly. Right. So anyway, we'll talk about that in the next podcast. So James, Hey, listen, both of you, I want to say you're doing great work. Thank you very much. And you know what? I like doing this podcast is really interesting because I'm going through this sort of relearning, reevaluating how I'm doing things. So, you know, there's a few things that I've, uh, my approach in teaching the hammer, you know, changed after I talked to Patty McGrath, right? Like I reconsidered my approach and a few things have changed. And now, James, you've got me, you know, thinking about that, particularly where I'm going to start all of this formal training and looking at this at peak height velocity and things like that, and look, you know, being a little more focused on that. So I want to thank you for that. Um, and yeah, so let's have another talk. And uh, that was fantastic. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Our pleasure. Yeah, our pleasure. Thanks, Thanks. for having us. All right. <laughs>